Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, September 2nd. We begin with an update on the federal election. We catch up with David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent, for details on the Liberal Party's platform, which was released Wednesday, and a look ahead to the first leaders' debate being held tonight. Next, we look at the pros and cons of heading back to school, the pros of our kids learning in person versus the cons of dealing with the coronavirus in a classroom setting. We get the thoughts of an epidemiologist from McGill University. Is targeting unvaccinated people in rural and remote locations in Alberta the key to winning the battle against COVID-19 in our province? We discuss the strategy with a professor of political science from the University of Alberta. And finally, it continues to be a very trying time for local businesses. What can business owners do to gain some traction during this fourth wave? We get some insight from Ellen Parker, CEO and owner of Parker PR. The first debate of the election campaign taking place today and there for the event is our chief political correspondent, David Aiken. With more on where we are in the campaigning and what we could expect to see from the leaders today, we are joined by David Aiken. Good morning to you, sir. Morning, guys. How are you doing? Good. Uh, thank you for taking the time with us. Busy time in your world. And before we talk about the debates Let's get a sense of where we are with the campaign. We have some new polling data out this morning provided exclusively for Global News from Ipsos. And uh, call it what you want. It's a tight one. It is. And you know what? Think about where we were a couple of months ago. I think the Liberals certainly thought they were going to sleepwalk their way to a majority. Mm -hmm. They were way ahead in the polls, particularly in uh, that vote-rich part of the country, Ontario. Liberals were just dominant. Well, you know what? Campaigns matter. We're halfway through. And here's the latest score. This is from our friend Ipsos. 32% for the Conservatives, they're actually ahead. Now, they're ahead by one point, 31% for the Liberals. So that's really a statistical tie. Uh, The NDP doing relatively well. They're back at 23%. Now, that's the national number. When we look at the important regions of the country where there's there's seats up for grabs, um, I'm going to... I'll, I'll give you up. Let's start with Alberta, actually. No seats up for... I thought there would be seats up for grabs in Alberta when we started. I thought the Liberals might win a couple of seats in Calgary. Don't think so anymore. I think right now the Conservatives are very strong right through Alberta. So, Alberta put that one, boom, in the blue, the blue team. Next door in B.C., Big difference. Three-way tie. NDP, Conservatives, and Liberals. Three-way tie in B.C. There'll be lots of dogfights there. Move to Ontario. We got another tie. I mentioned the Liberals used to be way ahead. Not anymore. They're leading the Tories by just one point. So that's a statistical tie in Ontario. And then here in Quebec, we got another tie, this time between the Liberals and the Bloc Québécois, separated by one point, uh, 31 to 30. We have the Conservatives back at 20% in Quebec. And to be honest, that's really good for the Conservatives in Quebec. NDP down at 11. So it's a tie, B.C., Ontario, and Quebec, and a tie nationally right now. Wow. Big change. Big change for sure. Okay, and with such a tight race in Quebec as well, it sounds like there's a lot on the table for tonight's French language leaders debate, which you are there for. What can we expect? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, in 2019, the Liberals lost their majority primarily because they got beat up here in Quebec. They lost a lot of seats, mostly to the Bloc Québécois. So if the Liberals have any dream of a majority, and I mean, that's a dream right now. I don't think it's going to happen, but they've got to knock the Bloc seats, uh, the Bloc off. They've got to take those Bloc seats back. So I'm expecting Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, the Liberal leader, of course, 
to come hard at Yves-Francois Blanchet. He's the BQ leader. And, you know, in 2019, he won a lot of support in Quebec, and he really revived the fortunes of the, the Sovereignist Party because he had this swagger and this confidence about him and had a quick line. Well, that swagger has now turned into cocky and arrogant, and voters are starting to turn away from him here in Quebec, so we'll see if the Liberals can zip in. And then, in those parts of the province where the Conservatives may pick up seats, and that's pretty much anywhere outside of Montreal, the Conservatives' non-starters in Montreal, but not too bad in other parts of Quebec. And their chief rival in those other parts is the Bloc Québécois. So I expect Aaron O'Toole, the Conservative leader, his French is pretty good, he's going to be coming at Blanchet too. So that's what we'll be looking for tonight as they address, really, the Quebec vote. And David, up until a couple of days ago, it looked like that... uh Liberal leader Justin Trudeau would be going into this debate with without really, you know, he'd be able to, you know, uh, flap his lips and talk to the other candidates and debate some issues, but didn't have a platform, really. Now it's been released yesterday. What stood out to you in the document and what the Liberals are bringing forward? Yeah, the Liberals were last released her platform, did it yesterday. Tories and NDP have already done so. What stood out to me from all of these platforms is every one of these guys is promising billions to win your vote. Only the Conservatives had this vague notion of a balanced budget. And even those guys, oh, 10 years from now, we might balance a budget. And ironically, O'Toole is like, and the budget will balance itself. They'll just wait for the economy to catch up. So there's billions on offer here. Now, the difference between the Liberal budget, Liberal platform and the others is the Liberals actually costed theirs out. Tories haven't done that. Tories haven't put a price tag on all their items. Liberals have. So what do we know about the Liberal price tag? Here it is. Sit down. $78 billion in new spending over the next five years. $78 billion. Now, the Liberals also said, we have some new revenue opportunities, and you know what that means, new taxes, of $25 billion over the next five years. And this I find interesting. The two big new taxes they're proposing, this is the Liberals, the, the first we heard about a couple of weeks ago, tax the banks. Those big bank profits, they're going to put a, a surtax on the big bank profits. Okay, what was new yesterday? Tax the, tax the rich. They're going to put a minimum tax for anybody with a taxable income better than two hundred and twenty grand a year. So that's a minimum. You, know, you can't do deductions to reduce your taxes. You're going to pay a minimum 15%. So tax the banks, tax the rich. Who, who's on the campaign trail saying that? Jugmeet Singh and the NDP. So this is a clear attempt by the Liberals in what they describe themselves as the most progressive platform ever tabled by a federal Liberal Party. The Liberals clearly... Saying we have to get those new Democrat voters, those soft, soft new Democrats, those on the left, got to get them back on the liberal side, or we're never going to win this election. And that is really where the strategy is, I think, for the final two weeks of this thing is Justin Trudeau and the liberals really, really going hard to get those new Democrats back in. Problem. Jugmeet Singh and the NDP, they're running a good campaign. And Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives also running a campaign to the center. So, you know, those New Democrats are looking at Aaron O'Toole and saying, well, he's not so scary. The Liberals want you to think that Aaron O'Toole is so scary. Ooh, scary Conservatives. But I don't think it's going to work because O'Toole has positioned himself as pretty moderate, center-of-the-road kind of conservative. And uh, that just might make him prime minister. Fascinating. First uh, debate will go tonight. Thank you so much, David, for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Cheers. David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent for Global News. Kids are heading back to class, but is it too big of a risk to be back in the classroom? Or do the benefits of in-person learning simply outweigh any health concerns? We're joined this morning by Joanna Trees-Merks, a lecturer in the Department of Epidemiology, Biostatistics, and Occupational Health at McGill University. Good morning, Joanna. Thanks for being with us. 
Good morning. Appreciate it. Appreciate the time. I I know as a parent and, you know, we are all here parents and have talked about the importance of our kids being in school when they were out during, you know, through the pandemic. So do you think then through your research and what you're seeing that it's more important for them to be in school than to be out and and that the risks outweigh the or the reward outweighs the risk, I should say? Well, uh, it seems that uh, for sure that last year we have learned about the risks that also come with not being school in school and with school closures. And we have uh, data that uh, tell us about how this infected both mental and physical health of uh, children and also how it impacts their learning uh, capabilities and also the other skills that they normally learn in school that they didn't have the opportunity uh, to develop. And mostly vulnerable children are mostly affected and they are getting more and more behind uh, of other uh, children in their in their group. Yeah. We do know that at the beginning of the pandemic, we talked about COVID-19 and the, the somewhat minimal effect on children. Of course, now we're dealing with the Delta variant. So let's talk about their health and the safety of children returning to the classroom. What does your data tell you about that now? Well, it's clear that uh, children can get infected that uh, with the Delta variant that both adults and children are uh, more likely to uh, become infected when they encounter somebody who uh, is infectious at that moment. And uh, what we see, however, is that the outcomes in children thinking about um, having symptoms when they become ill, the need for hospitalization, and then also the longer long COVID uh, and others, that they remain much lower uh, than when we compare to adults, and that in absolute terms, that they still remain uh, rare. However, uh, if we talk and think uh, about if children need hospitalization, in let us say kind of what we see in the data, 0.2 uh, to 0.5% of the children. That means that if a lot of children at the same time get infected, and uh, if we cannot prevent um, many infections, then at that moment that you still have a number of children that are in the hospital. So when they are hospitalized, the majority of the children recover fairly rapid. And this is also seen when they have the multi-inflammatory syndrome, which comes a bit later from of the acute infection, and those are uh, Canadian data also that they don't, they don't um, that they recover fairly fast. And then there's the flip side of the coin, Joanna. That you know, aside from the virus itself, there are also other issues in terms of mental health effects, and we've certainly seen that through the pandemic of young kids or all kids actually kind of you know being in school and then being sent home, and and then being in school and not being around people and not having that that uh, social aspect of things that they need so much. So mental health effects of school closures and illnesses can really play a role too. Mental health effects uh, that that has an effect. There are studies that have seen that anxiety and depression have doubled also in younger children when we talk about elementary schools. And um, that is one factor when we mainly look at, at mental health. Then as well, when we think about uh, child abuse, schools are... Uh, are, are, are a place where they get recognized, where children get a lot of support, both mental and, 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 and also social support. 
and they also can get detected. And that is one of the things that was seen is that there was less um, child abuse that was reported mm. to instances, but that didn't mean that it didn't happen, but that mainly the people that normally are so good in knowing children and being uh, very susceptible uh, to come to the, uh, uh, to pick that up were, were not with children. Joanna, I'm wondering, you know, obviously when we're talking about back to school, it's, you know, learning and it's that in-person learning that we underscore so much. But I'm wondering, uh, you know, how much more, well, not more important, but how important it is in the grand scheme of things that in-person socialization is uh, that the kids have when they're in class versus learning from home? Well, the, so the, the, there are already data where they look at how much behind children are in their uh, skills for mathematics and, 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 and other uh, more uh, concrete um, skills in that regard. It still needs to be kind of measured or to see how how that will affect children uh, and how much that will. But it's 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 true that for the socializing and also just uh, the the regular behavioral skills that children learn and pick up and to be able to work in a group, that that is not something that you can accomplish by virtual teaching. Is it important to include kids in any kind of decision making in terms of, you know, what's being done, whether you're staying home from school or whether you're going to school and the at home learning aspect, should that ever be an issue again? But is it important to talk to them and really kind of get their perspective and include them any kind of any kind of thought process and decision making that we do as parents? Well, at the end and kind of of the, an article that we also published, it is uh, we're very clear that that children should be included in in decision making. Also, should be asked and uh, looked at their experiences, and having them as well included in shaping their environment is important. On the other hand, we ask a lot from our children to now take infection prevention measurements uh, very serious. And often children are taking them much more ser- serious than we adults do. Mm-hmm. So support, so asking what they're, what they also understand, uh, go into a dialogue with children, include them uh, in, in in the discussions, and 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 support them at the same time is very important. One thing that we haven't touched on when you talk about the physical aspect, uh, you know, phys ed class in school is is fun for many kids. It's a, it's a great outlet and just a chance to you know, relax and unwind. But uh, missing that at the homeschool, can we measure how important phys ed class is to keep those kids moving who otherwise might not if they're uh, you know, homeschooled? Well, there are data and also Canadian data that look at, uh, looked at physical activity that was clearly decreased in Canadian youth. And then what also was measured is that screen time was up, not only by the class screen time, but in, in general. And it is known that excessive screen time is associated with the sedentary lifestyle and that it increases your risk for longer-term cardiovascular disease. Uh, and um, so that that has played a role, uh, the physical activity. And then there's also, in the meantime, how you eat and, and uh, how we kind of cope and behave with our uh, eating habits. Uh, when we are when we are not participating in a normal school environment but are at home. Interesting conversation as we send our kids back to school for the new year. Thank you so much for joining us with your thoughts. Appreciate your time.
Thank you. That is Joanna Trees-Merks, who is a lecturer, Department of Epidemiology, Biostats and Occupational Health at McGill University. Do rural and remote areas in our province need better access to COVID vaccines and, of course, the information surrounding them? With his thoughts, we're joined by John Church, a professor and the Associate Chair of Political Science at the University of Alberta. Good morning to you, John. Good morning, Andy. Well, when we're seeing these numbers and uh, looking at uh, our province lag behind the other provinces and territories when it comes to uh, first and second shots, uh, we're looking for the solution. So is that the solution, these uh, remote and rural areas in our province? I think that uh, definitely remote and rural areas are, you know, where vaccination uptake has been the, the lowest in, in Alberta. And uh, as you know, Alberta is now sort of leading the country in terms of new COVID cases. Uh, we have the lowest vaccination rate overall. So uh, we need to start looking at where it is that people aren't getting vaccinated and thinking about why it is that they're not getting vaccinated. And why do you think it is? Is it that the fact that, you know, there aren't as many people, obviously, in rural areas as we'd see in an urban setting? Or is it, you know, the lack of, of good uh, Internet service, perhaps, or a lack of trust? What do you feel it is, Professor? Well, it's a, a variety of factors. Uh, you, you're correct that the uh, Internet service is not as good, so access to social media is not as available as it is in the urban centres. But there's also the um, political climate in rural areas. Uh, there are a lot more people who uh, are libertarian in their views, and uh, and so they aren't as willing to accept what government wants them to do and uh, to to simply fall in line and and uh, get vaccinated. So, yeah, that one piece when we brought you in, John, we're talking about that education piece. The vax, is, uh, you know, might be available. We might have the staff. Uh, but h- how do we we get through? Is this information, education? Does it have to be an advertising or promotion campaign? I I think there's going to have to be very a very targeted advertising effort to get information out into rural areas. They're going to have to uh, provide additional resources for health providers, so that they can, uh, so that they can get the vaccines into people's arms. But I also think that um, they're going to have to take additional measures, particularly in uh, public schools, to protect children. Because uh, uh, one of the things, you know, with uh, children going back to school, uh, if they're in areas where there's a low level of vaccination rates, their exposure to the virus is uh, going to be much higher than for children in areas where they uh, where there's been a higher uptake of vaccines. Professor, do we just not really understand it as as folks who live in the cities and you know as as urban people or uh, sorry as as you know city people who don't understand that there's a lack of trust for folks that don't live in a city setting? Is there and is there really that much of a trust issue? Well, I, I think that there that it comes down to what your political views are, and and the you know conservative government a lot of their votes uh, come from rural areas, and uh, and they're trying to uh, you know they're trying to obviously uh, maintain those votes, and uh, so the MLAs 
the government MLAs are uh, sending messages or the government in general is sending confusing messages to the public. They have been throughout the entire uh, pandemic. Uh, You know, on the one hand, they're saying you should get vaccinated. But on the other hand, they're saying we're not going to make you get vaccinated. And we think, you know, your freedom should be protected. So those are confusing messages. And, uh, you know, whenever government sends confusing messages, they're going to get a confusing response from the public. And that's exactly what we've seen throughout this. Uh, And that hasn't really changed. And since the voters out in rural areas are almost, uh, you know, 100 percent going to vote for the conservative government, uh, you know, those are the, the kinds of messages that they're getting. And, you know, they're. They're, they're just not going to get vaccinated if the government doesn't send them a very clear message. Let's uh, talk about, you know, this is happening and we're obviously focusing and lasered in on our province. Is, it, is this similar to other provinces and territories or is Alberta exaggerated when it comes to this rural and urban divide? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that, that Alberta is exaggerated compared to other parts of the country, um, but... Uh, I think other parts of the country have simply been more effective in getting the message out about getting vaccinated, and uh, and they they've just had a higher success rate at getting more people vaccinated. And the other thing is, in in other parts of the country, particularly in places like Ontario and Quebec, uh, you know, a, a huge proportion of the population is in urban areas, and it's very concentrated. So uh, so the spread of the virus is going to be much greater in those urban areas anyways. Um, so so I, I think that, you know, there are differences in the way the population is distributed in other parts of the country that have a, an effect on it as well. So, John, just to wrap things up, is it, is it Alberta Health Services, AHS's responsibility then? Is it the provincial government? Who who needs to really sort of, um, you know, get the, the rural folks together and maybe hold town halls or, or pass the messaging around better? Whose responsibility is that? Well, I think it's got to be a team effort. It's got to be uh, the government of Alberta. It's got to be Alberta Health Services. It's got to be the uh, local governments. They all have to be working together on this because... Uh, you know, it's something that affects all of us, and it's affecting all levels of government. It's affecting all Albertans. And unless there's a, a team effort to convince these people who have not gotten their shots to get their shots, uh, you know, we're going to continue to uh, see the virus spread in the population. And we've got a number of new variants that are now emerging. And if, if we don't get a handle on this, uh, we're going to be seeing this go on for uh, months and, and we all may end up having to line up to get additional shots. I mean, they've already started talking about third shots now for people. So, I mean, we could have a third shot. We could have a fourth shot that we all have to go for if we simply do not get uh, as many people as can possibly get vaccinated, vaccinated. That's the bottom line. And whether it's rural or urban, because there are lots of people in urban areas that haven't been vaccinated as well. Uh, you know, university students returning, about 50% of the students returning to universities, uh, we know statistically have not been vaccinated, and they're all going to be stuck together uh, elbow to elbow in classrooms, uh, and, and nobody is going to be checking on what's going on. So uh, this is going to continue to go on until, the, you know, until almost all of the population has been vaccinated, and certainly all the population that can be vaccinated 
needs to get vaccinated, whether they're in the rural setting or in the urban setting. That's the bottom line. All right. Obviously, you have uh, some strong views there. Uh, We appreciate your time, John. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. That's John Church, Professor and Associate Chair of Political Science at the University of Alberta. It was interesting. We heard that story, I believe, in in Tony's newscast about uh, Jackie Wilson from Global talking about the big box stores that have been emptied and at the same time getting new tenants. Mm -hmm. So I think we're starting to see the wheels start to turn Mm -hmm. to, to get things back. So many businesses having a tough time. Uh, during the pandemic, for sure. Most definitely. Uh, before we get to our next guest, I just wanted to read this text from Cowtown Bob. Sure. Uh, morning, Sue and Andy. Excellent guest regarding the UNESCO World oh, Heritage yeah, yeah. Sites. We talked earlier um, about uh, travelswithbaggage.com is the website for Jody Robbins. She's a blogger. The oldest buffalo bones, says Bob, found at the head smashed in Buffalo Jump are a thousand years older than the first pyramids built in Egypt. He's giving high praise. Uh, some really neat travel destinations for us. All in our backyard. Mm-hmm. Summer's not quite over yet, so absolutely. Uh, back to businesses, and pandemic has been difficult for, for many, absolutely. And many not know how to navigate through this unprecedented time as we move into this fourth wave. With some insight and tips, we're joined by Ellen Parker, CEO and owner of Parker PR. Good morning to you, Ellen. Good morning. How are you guys? Good. Thank you for joining us. So you want to give us some insight and take a look at some September events in Calgary. Lots going on and talk about best practices to do authentic business development. Uh, you know, let's, let's talk about this for PR and marketing. Keeping your brand top of mind is very important. So explain this process. And yeah. I think a lot of people might have a successful business, but might be missing these pieces. Yeah, exactly. So there's different ways for businesses to align with events and charity, charity things happening in the community to get some more brand awareness of your business. So one is you could invite yourself to be a sponsor. So that's just connecting with an organization that say having a charity event and your business is aligned with that specific charity of choice and you can connect with them. And so what I really recommend is businesses build into their marketing budget, a community investment initiative. So build in whether it's $500, $2,000, whatever you can afford, and then look at your own company values and charity organizations in the community and what kind of events they're doing through the year, and then invest in becoming a sponsor. This will be kind of the biggest bang for your buck and the best way to control how your brand can become maximized through their event, as example. So you'll get your logo on their event. You'll get potentially um, on-stage greetings. At the event, you'll get to network with their people. If you don't have a financial means to become a sponsor, you can be a partner or an ambassador. And this is also a business contract, but it's more of an in-kind opportunity. So we call it sweat equity. We do work for the organization or the charity, and in exchange, they showcase our logo and they showcase our brand with Um, with their event as well. And then lastly, a way to have a small business um, become more connected to different stakeholders in the community is just being a community supporter through social media and digital marketing. So this is great for brand new businesses who have just opened their doors. They can look at the events happening in Calgary and say, okay, this is great. There's lots of people here who I want to connect with. And then they can just start promoting the event themselves and tag the event, tag the organizers, tag the charity that the event is aligning with, and connect digitally online. This is a way that you can really showcase your commitment to initiatives that you care about, 
And oftentimes, this leads to opportunities where they'll see a small business promoting their event, and then they'll reach out to that business and invite them to attend for complimentary or invite them to join their board of directors. So it's kind of strategic partnership engagement through different ways. Really smart way to share who you are, your your company name, your brand, for sure, while controlling the message. And I think that's probably the key, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And a great thing, too, as well, is to ask the organization that you want to align with, say, can you please send me visuals that you want me to promote on my website or on my social? Or send me the key phrases or the key messages that you want me to share? Because now they're saying, oh, wow, we have someone willing and invested in helping us leverage our event and generate awareness of our event. So it becomes a really authentic partnership. And these partnerships can be very long, long lasting. And that's preferable, as well as just saying, send me the event bright, invite, link, and I'll send it to my entire database. That's a really, really, really great way to help an organization and then get your brand connected to their brand. Great tips and I'm sure often overlooked by businesses. We'll have to leave it there for time, but thank you so much for joining us, Ellen. Yeah, thank you guys. Have a great day. You too. That is Ellen Parker, CEO and owner of Parker PR online at parkerpr.ca. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.